the average practitioner who doesn't know this well enough, they'll say, don't eat beans because the beans are going to make your gas worse. Actually, if you ate small amounts on a frequent basis, you're not going to see a great gas increase and you have to not just eat beans. You've got to stop the caffeine. You've got to stop the sweets. You've got to quit using the perfumes and fragrances because if you continue those things, you can eat all the beans in the world and it's not going to stop the situation. We can't do one without doing the other. Hello, and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. This podcast is my passion project. I created it for those along the healing journey looking for tools, inspirations, insight as to how they might be able to help themselves. I was sick for a very long time, and while I was sick, I was awake pretty constantly, 22 hours a day, no biggie, and I was searching the internet for help anything to help me. And there was very little to be found. And most of the information was very confusing and, well, lots of supplements. And so this project is really my gift to my community and to the travelers who find it. Today's guest is Karen Hurd. Yes, she's back talking about how she approaches SIBO and healing gut dysbiosis. And I can tell you firsthand as someone who has been working with this protocol and on this protocol for the last decade that these tools work. They're pretty amazing. I also wanted to let you know that my live group Hormone and Gut Reset for Women is now open for enrollment. Space is limited. So if you think you're interested, head on over to my website, yourgreat.com. And have a look, see if this is for you. I created this group program because over the years I heard from my clients that, wow, Unique, I really love doing the Bean Protocol with you, but I really wish I had a community. I wish I had others to share recipes with. Not a lot of family members are interested in joining your beanie journey. So if this sounds like you, then this is the course for you because it will give you not only a protocol that I can tweak but also a community of other being people who are on their healing path. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Karen. So wonderful to see you and to have you here again. So thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So before we started, we were talking about Alzheimer's. Is there anything anyone can do for that condition? Even though I know today's topic is more gut dysbiosis and SIBO and stuff like that, I'm just fascinated to know if there's anything in one's diet or lifestyle that they can do to slow it down or anything at all. Certainly to slow it down, but what damage has been done is done. And that can't be reversed because Alzheimer is where there's many, basically the neuron is, is no longer able to operate. And it could be because the neuron itself has actually gone through apoptosis, it means cell death, it has died. Or there's these little fibers, they're called neurofibers that extend out and then they get all tangled up around the body of the cell itself. And so if they're not spread out, they have to be all spread out. If they get tangled up, they cannot conduct an electrical message back and forth. So what you do is you don't get in that situation in the first place. And how do we get in that situation in the first place? The number one cause is the consumption of sugars. That is the number one, number one. Gonna, it will 
It increases the amount of glucose that is in the brain. There are receptors on every single neuron. That's a neuron is your brain cell, all of those brain cells. If you overload it with too much sugar, then it overfires and you actually just, if you will, I'll call it burn off the neuron, but it causes the neuron to break down and eventually go through apoptosis. And once neurons cannot, like every other cell in your body, except red blood cells, red blood cells and neurons, brain cells, cannot reproduce themselves. If you lose it, it's gone. It's gone. And whatever that cell information it was going to communicate, that is all gone too. And so it's a lifelong, and we see more and more dementia, you know, in 2023, this is when we're recording this podcast. There is so much dementia. Every single one of us, I think, can say, oh, yeah, I know someone that has dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy bodies, or several forms of dementia. All of us know people or multiple people. And why does it seem so prolific? Is it because that, you know, that now we recognize these people and we put them in, you know, memory care centers and that they were always there before? Well, certainly they were there before, but, you know, we'd have to look up the demographic data to see if it has increased over the years. But I will tell you, that our sugar consumption has increased over the years. And the more sugar we eat, then the more we're going to have with dementia. And we have to, we, we do something that with the age, wherever you are now, stop eating the sugar. And what about all the people that have Alzheimer's already? You can say, stop eating the sugar. It will help slow the progression, but there's nothing we can do to reverse that damage. And so it basically, in those people, they are already sugar addicts. They're hooked on it, and that's what they want to eat, and then that's what they do. Is that why I think I've heard it called type three diabetes? Is diabetes or insulin resistance a precursor for dementia? We only get insulin resistance by eating too much sugar. So it's not. I wouldn't say that it's a precursor. It just as another symptom of too much sugar. So I mean. Yeah. If you eat too much sugar, yep, you're going to have diabetes, you'll have insulin resistance, and all kinds of bad things happen. If one doesn't have blood glucose issues and their blood glucose is healthy, is it a possibility to still get dementia, not with eating all the sugar, unless you say you eat whole grains instead, whole grains and stuff like that? Is, is Could it still be a possibility from other avenues or is sugar kind of our main way, our main gateway to dementia? Sure, it's the main gateway. There are other avenues. Aluminum, heavy metals, especially aluminum, has been identified as a gateway, but it's not nearly as prolific. Basically, I mean, if you stay away from sugar, you're pretty much going to stay away from aluminum, too. I mean, how do you get aluminum? You're drinking sodas out of aluminum cans. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> sugar and aluminum together, not a good combo, it sounds like. Not a good combination, so. But our exposure to aluminum is not, it's in different food products like you have in baking powder. It's typically an ingredient in not baking soda and baking powder, but you can buy baking powder that doesn't have the aluminum in it. I mean, they sell it right on the market, right next to the one that has the aluminum in it. So, I mean, it's just making wise choices like that. All right. Well, thank you. I hear so much about dementia and it does feel like every other person I meet knows somebody, you know, it's not as it's, yeah. I remember when cancer was like that, you never met anybody with cancer. And now it's just like every other person. All of us know at least one, if not two or three or four or 10 or 20 that have cancer, had cancer, died of cancer. It is beyond epidemic. 
of proportions. People who died of COVID doesn't even touch the cancer statistics. It's true. It is true. And it's actually from the community, there's a lot of questions in there. So we'll get to that. But let's hop in because I know we only have a finite amount of time. So gut dysbiosis, the same as leaky gut. How do people end up with it? I'm pretty sure I have a good idea of what you're going to say, but let's hear it. Yeah, let's talk about the leaky gut and the gut diabosis. Leaky gut is proteins that are crossing the intestinal barrier undigested. Proteins are the most difficult thing for us to digest. We have carbohydrates that we digest. We have fats that we digest, but it is the proteins that are the most difficult to digest. It takes a lot of, of digestive effort to break them down into smaller particles and to they're breaking, being broken down to what are called amino acids. And amino acids easily cross the intestinal barrier. But if your gut becomes porous, I'm just going to use the word porous. Don't think like there's big holes because there's not, if there were, we would all be dead. But I mean, you know, so we're just trying to paint a picture here that these whole proteins cross and then they go into the bloodstream undigested. Well, in the bloodstream, we can't use a whole protein because these whole proteins that you need to understand, they're, they're not just, you know, 10 residues. A residue is a, is a protein. There's methionine, there's alanine, there's glycine, there's 20 different amino acids. And so we, and they come in long, long chains to make a protein. And it's very typical for a chain to be several thousand residues, several thousand amino acids long. And so we're trying to break all those down because they hit the bloodstream. We can't use it unless it's all broken down. And so it becomes then a problem. It's treated as an allergen. Your body treats it as an allergen. And now we have, quote, allergies, you know, food allergies. And so why do you have this leaky gut that's allowing these whole proteins to cross over? It's because you don't have good gut health in the sense that you have damaged the lining of your gut. Now, it's not damaged where you're bleeding and, you know, you, you may not even have any intestinal cramping or any gas or anything else, but you just, you, you hit, all you have is allergy symptoms, say. But I mean, most people do have leaky gut. I mean, a lot of times they will have some gastrointestinal symptoms. What is causing all the gastrointestinal damage to the wall that allows these proteins just to cross? I mean, it, that wall is supposed to be filtering everything out, you know, and making sure everything's broken down. That's done with enzymes that do the actual breaking down of the proteins. It's because we do not have enough soluble fiber in our gut. Soluble fiber is carrying out all of our bile. And our bile is what damages the inside of the gut lining. Because bile becomes more and more acidic as it recycles. All bile recycles. And I know we've talked about this on other podcasts, but I can go through that whole thing, but you know how long that is, Judy. <laughs> I just do the real, you know, the thumbnail sketch. We all make bile. It's a normal fluid that's made in the liver. It's released into the gut. And it is there to digest your fats. And it's also the trash truck for the liver. It carries out, carries out all those allergens that we were just talking about, all these dead proteins. And so all that's carried out in the bile. Well, your bile recycles at 95%. So at a certain place in your intestinal tract, it goes back into, it's reabsorbed. It's at the very last part of your small colon. It goes back into the bloodstream. And it's actually, when it, it, it's going to be broken down into its constituent parts, which is a lot of fat, cholesterol, anyway, all its little parts. And it gets dumped back in the bloodstream. And then the liver has to clean all that bile constituent parts back out. And then you have new garbage that your liver has been filtering out of your bloodstream. And that's all added. So now you're... As you keep recycling the bile, it just becomes more and more concentrated. Well, what is a concentrated bile? You need to think in the terms of pH right now. 
pH, the more you concentrate the bile, the lower the pH. The lower the pH, that means it's more acidic. And I don't know if you guys know about acids, but acids can burn and then just rip up flesh. And that will rip up the inside of your intestinal tract because you have this burning acid on the inside of your tender little intestinal tract. And so then it's not able to do its job very well. And so all these whole proteins keep crossing and going into the bloodstream and creating all these reactions with leaky gut. That's the bottom line. So the issue is eat soluble fiber. Eat soluble fiber throws the bile away, doesn't recycle. We take care of the problem. Is that well, so? so, okay, so... So the tight junctions in the gut or the villi are damaged by the acid of the bile that's continuing to recycle without interruption because so many people are avoiding the foods that contain the most soluble fibers. So they're ending up with this situation. Now, you said allergies, food sensitivities, histamine responses. These are all downstream effects of the dysbiosis in the gut. Yes, it can be. And I mean, okay. another thing too, I mean, because you can also breathe in allergens too. Right, right. But yeah, right. any any protein that has not been digested and broken down into those 20 amino acids, that is considered a foreign object in the bloodstream. And if you have enough of them, it can create an allergic reaction. Hives, itching, you know. And so like soluble fiber uh, is still the answer, even if you have... it. Would it still be the answer if you have a sensitivity to legumes at that point and you're on a low FODMAP diet because your dysbiosis is so bad that you're not even breaking down polysaccharides anymore? Or Then you, what you do is you just take the straight fiber and that psyllium. Yeah. Okay. You just slowly work up on that until you've gotten rid of enough of those, those, uh, at those proteins that are crossing. And then you can start on the beans. So. So, because you're really looking to tighten back up those, the, the junctions, the villi, repair villi, and mucosal lining, I would imagine. So it's probably a little bit of a step. But I, I know from working with you for all these years is that the gut is actually one of the fastest he healing organs in the body. It's like every three days. Three days. Three, three days. days you have a mitosis, a, a new lining. Now, the villi are hair-like projections that extend from the surface, this this epithelial layer. We have several layers. There's an epithelial layer, there's an endothelial, and then there's the mesenchymal, which is the deep, deep layers. I mean, so we have the same in our skin. And so what's getting damaged is that outside layer, the epithelial layer of the gut. And so it's not just the villi that just flatten up against the wall. The wall itself is being damaged. How does alcohol play a role? Is alcohol making the bile more acidic? I mean, from what I understand in my education with alcohol, is that alcohol not only is difficult on the liver, but it, it really crosses a lot of cells in the body, not just the liver as well. It doesn't just affect the liver. So is it, would you say that alcohol plays a role in this gut dysbiosis? Now, yes, it does. It's a little bit different role altogether. The The construction of alcohol is is completely different than proteins. It's basically a lot of OH. And so it's it can do chemical reactions. The proteins are not going to do any chemical reaction at all. They're just dead pieces of garbage floating in the bloodstream, which do carry a pH, though. But the alcohol can actually undergo chemical reactions. It, it is reactive. And so it's not... And it's broken down too. The protein is not broken down. It's just being, it's a big piece of trash being thrown away. Alcohol is actually going to be broken down into its constituent 
hydrogens and oxygens and carbons and then and then they can do all kinds of reactions. And yes, it is very difficult on your liver as well as other cells. Does it make bile more acidic? Would it be a contributing factor to the bile getting out of hand or not really? No. So some of the questions that people have asked me is like, okay, Unique, can the protocol heal my gut dysbiosis? And the answer is yes. 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 And what about SIBO? That's the other one. We're like, okay, there's gut dysbiosis. And now in today's world, everything is SIBO. Everybody has methane or hydrogen SIBO or combinations of sulfur. What are your thoughts on SIBO? Give it to me. SIBO is in, it's a overgrowth of bacteria in the small colon. Your bacteria is supposed to be basically in a large colon. Just think of it this way. If you had a, a field and it was damaged, the, the crop is all damaged, okay? What, and you leave it alone, you just got damaged ground. What's the only thing that's going to grow out of that? Weeds. The bacteria take advantage of weak intestinal lining, take advantage of damaged intestinal linings, and it's not, and then... The bad bacteria always said if they have a, a, a fertile ground and that, that a fertile ground is a damaged gut, that's where they're going to grow. Because we have good bacteria that also grow in our gut too, but that's in the large colon. And so it's always the bad things take advantage of weaknesses. Whenever we're weak or something is injured or damaged, that's when the bad guys get in. When you've got a good gut, good gut health, you don't have any problems. That bacteria will all die. And it dies pretty quickly, by the way, those bacteria. They'll all die off because they no longer have a place to be able to, to live and to multiply. So it gets rid of the SIBO. The SIBO is the same thing as the gut fibrosis, is that as the as the light leaky gut. It's just if you have a healthy intestinal lining, you will not have leaky gut, you will not have the fibrosis, and you will not have the SIBO. They just won't be there. How do you get that? Quit putting acidic bile through your gut over and over and over and over and over again. Eat soluble fiber. So SIBO is an extension of the same cause as a dysbiosis or leaky gut then. And it's just gotten out of control and pushing up into the small intestine. Exactly. Okay. It's the same cause. All of the, whether you talk about whether it's pancreatitis, whether you think about it, it's gallbladder, whether you say that it's IBS or you say it's Crohn's disease, it's ulcerative colitis, it's all the same cause. And that cause has many different outcomes. So it's the same cause and it's just, okay, which outcome are you going to have? Interesting. So a lot of people with SIBO, I've noticed over the years that will come through, will have had SIBO many times, reoccurring constantly. They'll take antibiotics, they'll, it'll go away, and then they go back to living their normal life and then they have a reoccurrence again. Yep. Is that just chasing the tail if you're not really changing your diet? Yeah, you're not changing your diet. I mean, so what does an antibiotic do? It kills all bacteria. So it kills the good, it kills the bad. Okay, good. We wiped it. You wiped the slate clean. Nice. But you still didn't mend the lining of your gut. So it's just going to come right back. And then you have to take another course of antibiotics and it's just round and round and round. Because the first thing they tell everybody is if you have SIBO or gut dysbiosis or leaky gut of any kind, do not eat legumes. Do not, do not, do not. That is kind of what everybody is told to stay far, far away from, you know, 
And the reason they're told that is because people who have those situations already have a gas problem. They're already bloated, which is very uncomfortable. And gas can be downright painful where you want to cry as it's, you know, gets trapped and it won't move and you're blown up like a balloon. It's very painful. And beans, people always say beans cause gas. No, beans don't cause gas. It's the fermentation of carbohydrates that cause gas. Beans happen to have carbohydrates in them besides having just the soluble fiber. And so when you eat the beans, that carbohydrate is going to be fermented. And fermentation always creates a gas. And then that gas, if you can't burp it out or push it out the other way in flatulence, then it's stuck. And a lot of it gets stuck. And then that makes you very uncomfortable. So then you have the average practitioner who doesn't know well, know this well enough. They'll say, don't eat beans because the beans are going to make your gas worse. Well, actually, if you ate small amounts on a frequent basis, you're not going to see a great gas increase. And you have to not just eat beans. A lot of people just say, oh, I'll just put beans in my life. You've got to stop the caffeine. You've got to stop the sweets. You've got to quit using the perfumes and fragrances. You can't continue to eat chocolate and say, but it's dark chocolate and healthy for me. And I have to have my cup of coffee in the morning because if you continue those things, you can eat all the beans in the world and it's not going to stop the situation. We can't do one without doing the other. So what all of those have in common is they're all stimulants and are are they all contributing to a more acidic bile? Is that what's going on there? They are. Absolutely. They are because they are creating a hormonal response and our hormones, the, the, the construction of hormones then adds to a pH balance that drops. Okay. So if you're, if you're having these major adrenaline responses, then that's being dumped into the bile via the liver as well. Okay. And then I will tell you, everybody that's listening to this, just pay attention to your life. When you're nervous, when you're upset, when you're coming up on a menstrual cycle, all these things I'm saying now means you're producing more hormones. Whenever you're producing more hormones, even if it's a stress hormone or it's the menstrual cycle hormones, or you're a child and you're going through a growth spurt and you're producing the growth hormones, whenever you are producing more hormones, you will always have more gas or you'll have and you didn't have gas before and now you have gas you say why do I have all this gas I'm really nervous because I have to give a speech or whatever you're going to do and man I'm so full of gas yes it's because you've got the stress hormones going because you got to give a speech and now you got a whole lot of gas well it's because the hormones hormones don't get broken down hormones are not taken apart into their little bit of carbons and hydrogens and oxygens like our alcohol is broken down but hormones are not And wherever they go, they trigger a reaction every single place. And as soon as they trigger the reaction, it's a really cool chemical phenomenon what happens. But it's called a taunt and a relaxed state. But they will trigger reaction and then they go back to their relaxed state. And then they trigger reaction and then it's always back and forth. They trigger. It's just like turning on a light switch on, off, on, off. You can do that with hormones forever, forever. And then they change the pH of your bile. They go down in your gut. And because they're a hormone and wherever they go, they're going to cause a chemical reaction. The first thing those hormones do in your gut is like, oh, let's have the process of fermentation happen. And they trigger a very complicated chemical reaction called fermentation because we have two ways to digest our food, either through the fermentation process, which is not the preferred way. And it is the secondary way. The first way is through digestive enzymes. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the way we work best because we don't get any fermentation. If you don't have fermentation, you don't have gas. 
But some gas, my understanding also is some gas, totally normal and natural to toot. Some, I don't know what the number is, but I'm sure that there's a rough number of how many toots a day is totally healthy and normal. And then you have the microbiome, which also makes gas in itself when you're giving it those fermentable fibers, right? So at play could be the hormone response and also the little microbiome. Because the the bacteria, they're also creating that fermentation response too. I mean, that's what they do. That's how we make wine. I mean, we're fermenting grapes and how's it done with bacteria, you know, and yeah, kombucha. People are like, oh, I love kombucha. Oh, that's your, your, you're taking in a third party entity, basically. <laughs> third party gas. We, we haven't even talked about the caffeine in kombucha either. Right. Everybody makes it with a green tea or a black tea. or So that would be a, a contributing factor to gut dysbiosis gas because of the adrenaline response. So it's interesting that some, that there are a lot of coffee drinkers that don't have SIBO and issues, do some people just clear that adrenaline hormone easier than others? Because most of the people I see with SIBO are women predominantly. Is there an aspect of the female anatomy that doesn't take down caffeine the same way men or are they just better at it? It's because women actually produce more hormones than men do. I mean, men never have to go through a menstrual cycle. You know, once they make it through puberty, they're there. There's no ups and downs for them. And women, every single month, they have two peaks, big peaks of hormones. And so one at ovulation, one just prior to menses. And so we are constantly flooded with these hormones. And so men can certainly have, you know, panic attacks because that's caused by hormones too. But and, you know, it's, let's just take women. Let's just stick with women. Well, why do some women have more response than other women? Well, first of all, let's just assume all of their diet is 100% the same. Everybody's good. They're not doing sugar. They're not doing caffeine. They're doing everything perfectly. They're all eating their beans. But yet this woman over here, she has zero gas. And this woman over here has gas. It's how they handle the stress. Because there's this mental piece, too. You know, if you grew up in a family who every time that you, you know, step just halfway wrong, you got yelled, screamed at, you know, whatever, you know, there's all this stuff that comes back or you, you don't handle stress well, you know, you, you're coming to pieces or, you know, and, and that is a, that's a mind thing. You know, that's a, a training that we have in a mind. It goes to training. It goes back to experience. And it's just, and we can untrain that, by the way, we can say, I am not going to let this upset me. Yes, this looks bad. It's bad. But you know what? I I refuse to have an adrenaline response over this. Just, I'm not going to do it. And that takes some mental discipline and practice. Yes, I remember when we met for the first time and you said, you're a high adrenaline maker. And at the time, I didn't understand that. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And of course, as I began to heal and could see the difference between not being stuck in fight or flight, because I was just stuck in fight or flight all the time. I did grow up in a family where you stepped out of line a little bit and there was major consequence. So my nervous system was just heightened all the time. I was always on high alert. And that, hence IBS and gut issues throughout my life that I had because I was just pumping adrenaline. I didn't know life without adrenaline until I worked with you. And suddenly I had quiet in my body and that was weird. I was like, I'm still a high adrenaline maker, but I have capacity now to calm it with my diet, my lifestyle, normally jumping on 
podcast. I'm nervous. I'm not anymore. I feel calm. Like diet really does make a huge difference. So I'm definitely walking, talking proof of that. So women, the reason why women tend to have SIBO more, also women tend to really be addicted to sugar. It's a really interesting thing I've noticed. That's a real sticking point is sugar, sugar and caffeine. Yeah. Yes. It's because they get a temporary calming effect. For some people, it may be five minutes. Some people, it's for 30 minutes. Some people, it's an hour. And they get this temporary release of serotonin. It's a particular hormone that makes you feel calm, happy. Life is good. Huh? And then it wears off. And then they're going through withdrawal because they need that production of the serotonin. So they, they're back to the sugar. They're back to the caffeine. And it's just, it's just this vicious They also seem to happen around for some people right before they get their period. And I have been I've been saying that what I notice in myself, that's where I was eating sugar before, is that if I actually eat nuts or protein or something else, that craving goes away because I think it's my body just saying I need more nutrients because I'm about to come up on a cycle versus my brain interpreted as I need sugar. (laughs) Yes. And that's a very that is a very likely you know, explanation. I can agree with that. Yeah. I'm like, not sugar. That's my weird brain twisting it into something else. I actually need nutrients. Okay. So one of the questions around SIBO was how important is it to move your bowels daily if you have an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine? Everyone for your best possible health should be moving your bowels once a day. Okay. Once a day is fine. And so if you're not moving your bowels once a day, then what we want to do is add enough fat because fats are the your substance. Fats with beans together, fats and soluble fiber especially, are what cause your bowels to be easier to move. What is happening when someone adds fats in and they get constipated? What is going on there? I've seen that before and I'm always like, what's going on? Because it should release bile and bile should get peristalsis going. Because of this. Yeah. It, it, the first thing we have to look at is what is the fat that you're adding in? Right. What is it? If it is a nut, and that's typically where we're going to add fats and we're going to use nuts because they are so high in fat. Well, some nuts come higher in calcium than others. And calcium can bind a person up, whereas magnesium will loosen the bowels. So mm-hmm. if you wanted, you know, if you wanted to do a nut to help your bowels move that would be your cashews because of the higher content of magnesium. Cashews have calcium. Yes, they do, but they are one of the highest nuts of, in, it is, of the magnesium. You know, but if we're just hanging on to peanuts or, you know, one that is not as high in magnesium. So that's why, you know, when a person takes calcium supplements, you know, because their doctor or whoever, they think they need to take it because they have osteopenia or osteoporosis, you know, I always say, be prepared. This is a typical response. You're taking this calcium that you're going to add constipation. Okay, that's good to know. And then another question that was asked was to explain methane and hydrogen. I had heard somewhere along the way from a doctor that methane, SIBO, was related to more of a candida overgrowth. I'm curious your thoughts on the differences between these two. All it is is a difference of how many hydrogens that we have attached to the carbon. So methane is CH4. It's just one carbon and it has the, the methane, these methyl units to on the edge. It's hydrogens is what they are. It's just four hydrogens and a carbon. When you have hydrogen, hydrogen is a gas. You can have just 
hydrogen gas that hasn't yet come bound to a carbon. It really doesn't matter. You know, they say, oh, this is caused by yeast. This is caused by something else. No, all of it is caused by a damaged intestinal lining, the villi and the intestinal lining. It doesn't matter if you want to say, oh, you have methane. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So whether it's sulfur or methane, basically these are all saying what you are fermenting the most in your gut that it has dysbiosis, but the treatment plan is the same. Yes. Okay. Got it. Great. And so, and we already covered if you can't eat beans while you eat, have SIBO, then you could do psyllium husk because it is a non-fermentable fiber if you're very uncomfortable. And if you have candida, I had candida when you and I started working together and the doctor had wanted to treat it, but I was done with antibiotics at that point because up to that point, I had taken so many antibiotics, I'm pretty sure it gave me the overgrowth of candida. That's exactly what it did. <laughs> All we can do is say it's probable. We don't know for sure, but it, almost assuredly, that's what created it. Yes. I'm pretty sure because if it wipes out everything and candida is opportunistic and the environment is ripe, I'm pretty sure that little opportunistic candida is going to be like, woohoo, I'm going to take over since all the good guys are gone. But I was like, no, I'm not doing any more antibiotics. I'm done. I'm just done. I was having UTI. I don't know if you remember this, but I had UTIs all the time for no reason. UTI. I, w I was living in the baking soda bath all the time and I didn't treat the candida. I just did the protocol. I, I healed the gut, the Crohn's. And once I healed that, the microbiome came back and was healthy. And obviously I'm, I'm really healthy today. So it all works. It all works if you yeah. stay with it. Yes, it all works. Heal the gut. Well, so it's interesting when somebody comes to you with a multitude of health issues, but one of them is gut. Do you always start with the gut? Because I can't say that they have arthritis and they have gut problems. There is no way that we're going to be able to even touch the arthritis till we get the gut fixed because the foods that we have to eat to fix the arthritis are going to give you gut problems. Right. Because the gut's not in shape. If it's in good shape, then you can handle the foods. And what are those? They're fats. You're going to have to eat a lot of fats. But if your gut's upset, no, you're not going to handle fats well at all. It's going to be bad news. You'll have diarrhea. You it's, why, it's why I call this the superfood highway. <laughs> it's just the superfood highway. That doesn't work. Nothing is really, really going to work. All right. Another question was, does gut health affect hormone health and vice versa? Hormone health absolutely affects gut health because the hormones are driving it. They're making the bile more acidic, which is, causes damage. And then they are triggering all this fermentation. So does gut health affect hormone health? Mm. Not really. Interesting because there's a term, and I'm, I may mispronounce it, called the estrobolome, where they say that there's part of the gut microbiome that can help break down estrogen. Have you heard of this this topic? No. Yeah. If the liver can't break down estrogen, I'm wondering what else can, because the liver is the master breaker down. Bacteria is going to take, you got to understand these are very tiny molecules. These are very, very small molecules. And you're going to really break down an estrogen molecule? No, it's going to be bound up. It's got to be bound up with gotta fat. Be up. Got to remember that chemical reactions got to have like with like. You're not going to be able to mix oil and water. So I am not aware of anything. You know, I can, I'm very open if you, you know, somebody sends me an article, I'll read it. But you're talking about breaking down a fat type of thing with a bacteria. It's just right. like, I'm trying to see the chemical connection and how this is going to work. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, all the, the molecule 
and seeing how or how is that going to really trigger a breaking down? I don't see the bonds being broken. I don't I'm, I can't see it. So I'm going to send it to you and get your thoughts on the paper that I saw. I was also curious about that as well. So I, I will send it to you. See, you know, and see if it has any validity or not. There is so much scientific data out there. And I mean, you have to be cautious when you're looking at scientific data, too, because you have to look and see what was the sample space, the sample spaces, how many people were involved or how many rats or how many, you know, and did did you repeat this several times and did you have the same results each time, you know? And so many times there, the studies come out, they're associations. They're not a proof. There's just like, it seems like this is associated with this, but we can't say for sure, you know? So yeah. we only got to look at them with a very careful eye. Always look to see if they have a vested interest in it. If they have a vested interest in this study because it's going to allow you to buy the product that they're marketing, you bet it's going to be slanted. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited to ask you this question because <laughs> I see this question so often and I'm just like, oh, Karen, I can't wait to talk to you. So many people are pushing coffee enemas. Do they work? And what could go wrong with that scenario? Well, coffee enemas do work. That's not a, a question. Efficacy is there. I'm saying caution with a very big yellow light blinking at you. You are going to ruin your health. Coffee, caffeine crosses the intestinal barrier quite easily. It actually crosses the skin too. It's just a very easy molecule to cross. So you can put it up, you know, in an enema through the large colon and it's going to absorb and it's going to go into your bloodstream. And so it's just like drinking a cup of coffee and we have the same adrenaline response. So caffeine has always been known as a laxative. It is a laxative. And so sure will work. So as if you were drinking the coffee, because a lot of people say, oh, I feel better, but I don't feel jittery or I don't feel anxious. And then I noticed whenever a client comes and they have elevated liver enzymes, the doctor will say, drink coffee. What is the mechanism? Why? I don't understand. Well, coffee always stimulates a large production of hormones. And it's because of the caffeine. When we say coffee, it's the caffeine in the coffee is what's creating it. And so when you have that caffeine creating a large amount of hormones, your body is always going through a little checklist and saying, okay, do we have enough of these hormones? We have too much of these hormones. If you have too many of these hormones, we have to clear them out. And so if you have a lot more hormones that you're introducing, then what you do is that your liver is going to actually increase your blood pressure. Your liver is a static organ. It can't speed up its processes. It's a filter. So it doesn't like, oh, I'm going to grab things out of the bloodstream faster. No, it's static. It's a filter. We have to get things to flow through the filter faster. Well, how do you do that? You raise your blood pressure. How do you raise your blood pressure? Caffeine, because caffeine is a vasoconstrictive. It causes all the blood vessels in your entire body to get smaller and tinier. They don't close off. They just get smaller. Well, if you have the same amount of liquid flowing through your body as you always do, but now the space at which it has to flow through is smaller, that means it flows through faster. So all these things go through your liver faster, faster, faster. And so that's making your liver filter everything faster. And that's a good thing? No. It's not a good thing at all. So oh because what happens and you know, for people, you know, for, you know, you, the original question was drink coffee if your liver enzymes are high. So that would be something I would not recommend because it makes your liver work harder. Your liver is already over 
taxed and is already working too hard. And that's why your liver enzymes are elevated. So that advice, I cannot agree with that advice. It's actually the first time I've heard and it hurt anybody mention it before, but it's like, that would be a stupid thing to do. I, I've seen it many times and I'm always very confused by it because if you already have elevated liver enzymes, why would you then recommend two to three cups of coffee a day? But anyway, interesting. Okay, so coffee enemas are big, hairy, no. <laughs> you heard it here first. I've spent a lot of time getting people off coffee enema and what's interesting to me about it is that it's as hard to get them off of coffee enemas as it is to get them off of coffee. They're addicted to it. Yeah, and their bowels are addicted to it too. They become lazy. And so when you take away their stimulus, caffeine is always a stimulus. It stimulates everything. You take that away, then your bowels are going to just lie there and do nothing. They will not go through their contractions. It's called peristalsis to move everything through. And then you say, see, I'm constipated without it. It's because you became addicted to it. That's, and it's true with all laxatives. It's not just coffee enemas. I mean, it's, if you're taking magnesium supplements, I mean, you, there's all kinds of different supplements that we can take is, or that are, move our bowels. And so, yeah, you have to wean off of those because otherwise your bowels say, well, the only reason I ever worked is that I got a kick in the rear end. Now I'm not getting the kick in the rear end, so I'm not going to do anything. So we'll just let all this stuff sit here and not move. Yeah, it's like going to the gym and have somebody else lift the weights for you. You don't actually get any stronger. <laughs> you have to rebuild the, that peristalsis that, you know, which is life, by the way, to eat and to poop is, is life. And I think it's a reaction. I joke that I've never met a more angry woman than a constipated woman. <laughs> <laughs> Loaded and angry. Okay, let's move on. Somebody asked, should you stop doing beans when you're on a low FODMAP diet? because they are tend to be higher FODMAP. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on the FODMAP diet in general? I have never recommended it to one person out of my 30 plus years of practice. Mm -hmm. That's not going to solve the issue. What you're doing is you're running down the street to solve, you know, whatever gastrointestinal issue it is that you have by, you know, eating these particular foods and, and you are missing the key piece to heal yourself. And that is soluble fiber. So you know, if you want to be on a FODMAP diet, then that's your choice. But I would at least start with the psyllium then because they are not a bean and it is a, it is a soluble fiber. It cannot be fermented. It is, you know, it is, there is no carbohydrates attached to it. They say, well, you know, it's fiber and that's carbohydrate. That is an FDA regulation that they put fiber and classified it as a carbohydrate. It should be its own category. It is, doesn't give you anything and it's carbohydrate. It gives you four calories per gram. It gives you energy. You can take all the fiber in the world. It will never give you one calorie of energy, not one, hmm. because it doesn't have any. All it is is a very complex structure of polysaccharides. So for histamines and mast cell response, is that, would you say that's a down stream effect from a leaky gut, a dysbiosis, which can be healed in the same way if you heal the leaky gut. It's an, allerg it's an allergic reaction. Histamine is an allergic reaction. And that means there's so many of a particular protein and it can be many different proteins. It can be one of our different foods we eat. It can be perfumes, fragrances, dust, mold, animals. Yeah. Animals, yeah, pets, you know, leaves, you know, pollen, you know, there's just lots and lots of different proteins. 
if you have small amounts, then your body just, your liver is clearing all this out. They don't interact and have any chemical reactions to dead protein, but what that protein, because it's dead, it cannot interact. It's, just, it's like a piece of wood, but it's, I, I called fiber wood before, so I want to make sure that the protein, it's not alive. You either have alive proteins or dead proteins. And so all these allergens are dead and they're not going to do any chemical reactions. However, your body has to identify every single foreign protein in your bloodstream and say, do you belong to Karen or do you not belong to Karen? If you don't belong to Karen and I don't recognize you because we make lots of protein, our red blood cells are protein. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're protein beings and you have to carry your cell ID to say, I belong. Because your body's job, your, it's your immune system, is responsible for finding any other protein that doesn't belong. Because what are these proteins? They're disease. They are our diseases. And so you say, well, it's bacteria. Well, what are bacteria made out of? They're made out of proteins. I mean, so, so they say, you're a foreigner. If you're a foreigner, we have to get rid of you. And so the immune system will mount an attack to get rid of this real live bacteria that is a foreign protein. Well, what about allergens? They're dead. They're not going to take over your body like a disease would. They're just going to be filtered out through the liver and thrown into your bile. Well, when you have a massive influx of a particular protein, because it's got proteins all have different shapes. They all look different. Every single one looks a little bit different. A types of protein, you know, like a, a, a pine protein versus a, a dog dander protein. So they all have a certain look to them. And once you get a whole bunch of one of them, they go, whoa, I think we have a bacteria. We have something that's alive because look, they have grown. They're growing in massive amounts. You know, one or two filtering through, 10 or 11 filtering through. They're not reproducing. These guys are reproducing because see, things that are alive always reproduce. Allergens will never reproduce themselves because they're dead. But if you put in a whole lot of allergens and you keep recycling them over and over and they come back into your bloodstream and you're exposed to more of whatever it is, the dust, the dog, or whatever it is, over time, it builds up. And then the immune system goes, we were really wrong about this. We thought it was an allergen, but we now know that it is alive. This dog dander is growing. Well, the dog dander is still dead, but it's in the volume that then the immune system says, okay, the way we're going to kill it, because there's different ways to kill things that enter the human body that shouldn't be there, is that we're going to flood that with a very potent cellular mediator, which is called histamine. It's very damaging. It causes itching. It causes cell damage to everywhere it's released. You can break out big hives, scratch, you know, it's, it's, it's a damage and it will kill. It will kill a bacteria. It will kill a virus. It really will. And the protein's already dead. The allergen is already dead. So we're going to kill the allergen. Was already dead, but now you're having this histamine release. And then, so now you have the itching. Now you have the hives. You can have a histamine release in the gut because the gut releases histamine too. And, it, and all of it, then what does that histamine do? It causes inflammation in the surrounding tissue and damages the surrounding tissue. Yeah. Soluble fiber, people. Yeah. Okay. So someone asked, are cortisol and adrenaline stored in fat along with toxins? And is there a half-life of cortisol and adrenaline? Is there a half-life? I know. That was an interesting question. No. no. And do we store adrenaline and cortisol in fat, or is it just circulating in the bile? It's just circulating in the bile. Okay, so it's not stored. And um, it, Drugs have a half-life, but these are hormones. Remember, hormones live forever. They just keep triggering reactions wherever they go. Cortisol is a hormone. Adrenaline is a hormone. 
So if you are not eating your soluble fiber regularly, then you're just recycling it and it's continuing to cause reactions in the body. Right. That is a great thing. Adrenaline, pretty soon you're having a panic attack a day. You keep recycling. Now you're having two panic attacks a day. Now you're having three. Yeah. Okay. Can a person heal from kidney failure? Can they heal kidneys that are failing? Kidneys are very interesting because they can heal. This is one of the tissues that can regenerate. And so kidneys can heal, but you have to not eat things that are going to destroy them. Because people who have kidney failure, typically what they got, where they got to that place is that they were coffee drinkers, soda. Soda is particularly, particularly bad. And they'll say, but it was a, you know, it was a root beer. It had no caffeine. And it's like, oh yeah, you've got all kinds of other things that are just destructive. And the kidney has to clear all those things out. And so you have a lifelong or many years or even kids, you know, they, what are you, I'm just amazed that kids are like, drink water? No, I have to have, and they always have some drink in their hand, you know? So anyway, no, you can't, you can, but this is is not one that beans are going to heal. Beans work on fats and work on the liver. The beans have nothing to do with your kidneys, zero, except- Are they- are they yeah. inert? But the kidneys, are they okay to eat? Yeah. Because they come high in the minerals. And depending on what stage kidney disease you have, if you are further along, there's several stages of kidney disease. If you are in the more severe stages, I will always be telling you, take psyllium. Take psyllium. Avoid the beans because of the high phosphorus, high calcium. And when your kidneys don't work, the kidneys filter calcium and phosphorus. And, and so they, we don't want to put a strain on them. So I'm always very specific. People with kidney disease will do the soluble fiber because we need the help for the liver. It's not going to cure the kidneys. Well, we got to stop putting through all this water-soluble garbage, which mainly comes through all of our drinks for a liquid. Our only consumption should be water. I love water. Somebody did ask, how does Karen feel about smoothies if you put the entire vegetable in it? What are your thoughts on smoothies? Cold. You're not a big fan of cold. I'm not a fan of cold at all because your body temperature, we have to maintain a body temperature and you put cold in, then your body has to work hard to heat up whatever cold food you just put into it. I am not opposed to a smoothie as long as you're using the entire vegetable. You're not, you know, we've got these juicers that pump out, you know, all the fiber, you know, keep it all in. You can get these juicers that will, and it just looks like a ground up piece of celery or ground up whatever your, you know, carrot or whatever it is. Yeah, it is fine. That's fine. If you don't want to chew it and you want to, to drink it, it'll be thick and you'll have to add water to it. You yeah. can add almond milk or cashew milk. Mm-hmm. You know? But I also heard recently that it's actually really important for the jaw muscles and everything for us not to have these liquid diets, you know, to actually be chewing our food. <laughs> so that is, that is the way we're created. We're created to chew up our food into a pulp and swallow it. Now, in some cases, you know, we have people who can't swallow, you know, they have aplasia or something like that. Then you, then we have to grind everything and put it into a liquid form. But as soon as they heal, then okay, then we go back to regular eating. Well, I know that the person who asked this question is a longtime bean protocol person about the kidney failure for their friend. So I know that they're going to be really happy I, I got to their question. So somebody else asked that. I hear massage is good for lymphatic drainage. What is Karen's thoughts on lymphatic drainage support? I would not do it if you paid me a million bucks. 
when you do that type of massage and that you are trying to, you need to understand what your lymph is for. Your lymph are collector sites for bacteria, virus, fungus. These are the bad guys that cause disease in your system. And they are collector sites. They're like a garbage dump. And they hold those there until what? Until your immune system will actually make a very specific antibody, antiviral, antifungal. We actually will make one. It's like, hmm, you look like this. We're going to manufacture one that will kill you right now. Well, we have to have a jail. We have to have a, a, a jail cell for these, these to be retained in until we're, the immune system will make all the appropriate killing agents to go in there. And then they will flood that lymph and kill it all. And then they're dead. So when you go through massage and you say, we're going to get all that out of your lymph because your lymph is swollen in your neck or in the, under your arms, you know, in your groin, whatever, wherever, you know, behind your knees. We're going to, because they're all swollen up. Leave them swollen up. They're holding the bad guys. And so when you massage them, you just released all the prisoners from prison and they're back out on the street committing crimes again. Why? Don't know. Okay. Good visual. Good visual. Don't do the massage. Maybe wait until everything has been drained and then just get a nice massage, it sounds like. If you want to massage your muscles, you know, but it's that deep where you are, you're actually, you do, you're squeezing those lymph like you wring out a sponge. I'm actually really happy to hear that because I, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right that if your body is holding, if they're swollen, it means that your body's holding them until it has the capacity to do something with them. Right. Understood. Somebody else asked, if you have a list of food sensitivities that you've been diagnosed with, but you don't have any symptoms, is it important to remove those foods or? It is not important. If okay. you don't have the symptoms, because all we have, we have these tests and then they'll give you, you know, whether you're mild, moderate, severe, and they're just measuring what proteins are in that sample that they took, whether it's a blood sample. I mean, it, it, there's all kinds of different ways to take these samples, but they're just measuring the amount of that particular protein, you know, the pineapple or banana or whatever it is in that protein. When is it that your body reacts? We all know that because you'll have a symptom. So I wouldn't avoid him at all unless you start to have a symptom. And then what, what I do, eat my beans or take my psyllium on a very frequent basis. So I clear them out, clear them out because your liver is putting them in the bio constantly to throw them away, but they just recycle if you don't eat soluble fiber. Soluble fiber, what a gift from nature. It is. All right, let's see. Do you have time for a few more? No, oh, it's five. Oh. I'm supposed to meet my husband for dinner. Well, we'll have to save some of these for later. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That was a lot to take in. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I always love getting Karen's perspective because one of the things I know about Karen is that her greatest desire is to help empower us to heal ourselves and to give us insights and tools to do just that. I remember... When I went into remission with Crohn's disease, I was like, Karen, thank you. Thank you so much. And she said, you did it. You did it. And I just remember thinking, well, she's right, but I would have never thought of it like that. And that's how I run my practice today. I am just a conduit to the information, to the inspiration that allows a lot of my clients to heal. I don't do the work. I'm the guide, but you 
the one in the body navigating the ups and downs, you're the healer. You're the one showing up day in and day out for what you want most. And there is nothing more powerful than that. I can tell you, I was not perfect. I dropped the thread a lot and had to pick it back up again and keep going and was discouraged and felt hopeless and helpless and shake fist at sky and all of the things. But in the end, I'm sitting here in remission with Crohn's disease for eight and a half years naturally with diet and lifestyle changes. So there you have it. I hope wherever you are in this wonderful world, you are taking care of yourself and I hope to see you again soon.